Hello and welcome to the Alba Diversity Podcast, an Alba network undertaking to profile and highlight diverse and immigrant neuroscientists. The Alba network aims to promote equity and diversity in the brain sciences. We talk to neuroscientists across positions, career paths and backgrounds to better understand their personal journeys. We showcase the grit and determination it takes to overcome hurdles as part of underrepresented or minority groups. We talk about what keeps them going as individuals and as neuroscientists in today's world. Yes, yeah, so, so hi, uh, my name is Jose Zepeda. Um, so I've started a PhD program at Vanderbilt uh, where I hope to pursue a track of neuropharmacology I did my undergrad in biochemistry at UMass Boston. What have you done up till now in terms of neuroscience? Like what is your what is your neuroscience path look like? Well, as I was at MIT, I was working in a visual neuroscience lab, specifically looking at synaptic plasticity. We did some like really cool experiments where we were able to image activity at single dendritic spines. And I mean that was just fascinating. I think that it really solidified my passion for neuroscience. I just became intrigued with how many unanswered questions there are yeah. regarding synaptic plasticity. We know that it's so important for things like learning and memory, but I learned later that it's also extremely important for a lot of diseases where we can have um an excess of neuroplasticity, a lack of it, or sometimes it can just go awry. So with substance abuse you can have these circuits which are overpotentiated and you know some disease state where you know a person who's addicted to a substance just can't really that there is nothing that their brain can do to sort of break down that circuit it's been way too solidified i'm very interested in what forms of of synaptic plasticity might be occurring there is there something different about these synapses what led to that um and if can we interrupt that to help people i think that i really began thinking about neuroscience sometime in high school when i was kind of really interested in science but also extremely naive uh, didn't really fully understand like what being a scientist encompassed and for a very long time i i was really into theoretical physics but then um i i was also really interested in consciousness and and i think that sort of what brings those two together or where that originates from is probably just like um a curiosity for like the deepest questions in philosophy like philosophical conundrums um and things that keep you up at night things that don't have answers yeah yeah those really deep questions that people love to write about and i for some time love to read about and uh, my curiosity yeah it really stemmed from that um probably like my first real exposure with a brain scientist was actually um at the Massachusetts State Science Fair so it was uh, at MIT and i was presenting um this experiment that i had done with a double pendulum it's a dynamic system right so it's it's chaotic and but but still inherently like deterministic mm-hmm. so uh but i had read in a book somewhere um that you couldn't repeat like the double pendulum swing twice 
and so I, I just thought that that really got me going. So I, I, I went ahead and tested that. The, the really curious thing about a double pendulum is that at high energy levels, it does behave very chaotically. Mm -hmm. but you can imagine that at very low levels, it doesn't. Anyways, I was really excited to share my discovery, uh, <laughs> even though I'm sure that so many people had showed this before, but uh, there I was, um, and a brain scientist who just came to me and was really fascinated with the project and told me that they had actually done their PhD studying the brain as a chaotic system. thought of the brain like that. Do you have somebody in your life that you consider to be a role model or a mentor? And if you do, then what do you admire about them? I mean, bear in mind though, they don't have to be another scientist. So I think that probably one of the greatest role models in my life has been my mom. I know that's like super corny, probably with very cliche. Um, we don't thank moms enough. That's my <laughs> like personal view on life. Yeah, I agree actually. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my mom raised us on her own, four children. And so I, I saw her struggle a lot and she was always just determined to, you know, provide the best life for us. But even then she always sort of did all of these things to enrich her education with the limited resources that she had. So when my mom uh, immigrated into the US, she hadn't completed high school. Yet around age 35, she got her diploma mm -hmm. finally here in the US. And so just seeing her go and like teach herself English, teach herself how to do all these things, always sort of like put extra effort to be the best at whatever she could do. That was extremely inspiring. consider yourself to be a part of a minority group. You already mentioned that you're an immigrant, but uh, have there been times when you faced uh, covert or even overt discrimination because of this? Yes, I am the son of Mexican immigrants. Um, I think that like many people of a minority group, I have experienced racism, but I, I think that I've experienced it in many forms. I think that racism could be extremely uh, raw and overt, and then at other times it could be more nuanced. I do remember at a very young age, perhaps probably one of the most marking events in my life. Uh, we grew up, or I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, for the most part. My mom uh, fell in love with my stepdad and followed him there essentially. Um, but uh, they were going through a rough time. And so there's a time where we're moved to Arizona. Um, while I was in Arizona, I was uh, attending kindergarten. Uh, so I had made some friends, Max and Sam, who, uh, whom I would walk to school with every day. I remember one day, Sam's mom just out of the blue just told me that she, I wasn't welcome walking with, uh, with her children to school anymore. I, I remember just going home and feeling extremely confused. I really just tried to like trace back what I had done wrong or if I had done anything wrong. 
and I never really made sense of it, not until I was a lot older, that I sort of looked back on the event. Um, and so that, that morning that, that she asked that after we got to school, my grandma had come out. She, she called out to me in the morning to tell me I forgot something or something like that, but she spoke to me in Spanish. And my grandma's also brown, and I thought, okay, well, well, maybe there was something that went on that specific day that led to that. And it, it wasn't until then that I realized that maybe she didn't feel comfortable that, you know, some first-generation Mexican was hanging out with her children. Yeah, my next question is, is something that's, you know, very relevant for all of us. So diversity has become like an overwhelming catchphrase recently, but what does diversity mean to you? And if you have an event in your life where you've seen like the good effects of having inclusivity and diversity and, and places like where it really made a difference, um, can you tell us a little about such incidents? I think I have a very weird relationship with the word diversity, actually. Uh, uh, I mean, it's been very much like a recent sort of hot term, you know, everybody's using it. It's sort of always within this context of like, oh, well, if we recruit people who look different and have different backgrounds, it's going to have some profitable, you know, materializable effect it's going to benefit everybody who's here. So therefore those who are different than us, we will invite them over only if they can benefit us in some way or some regard, you know. It's a very transactional relationship. Yeah, and you know, so there is many immigrant stories of people who come and you know, they're top of their class and they're doing all of these things. But I, I have the opinion that, you know, these are human beings and people deserve to be here even if they're not reinventing, I don't know, or working at NASA or all these things that we deem glorifiable within society. With that said, I think that diversity can sort of be a weird way of sort of integrating people who have been neglected in the past from like certain sort of disciplines or, or institutions. With all that said, I think diversity is great and I think that it's necessary. I think that it's often just not communicated correctly. Um, I agree you know, with you on that. That's a really nice take. Yeah. I mean, if, if you want sort of more, uh, if you want different thinkers, if you, or if you just want to sort of change the type of institution that you're in, I don't know that the best strategy is to just say, hey, we're going to recruit a bunch of people that are different because they're going to produce some, you know, like I said, material, profitable substance, be it ideas or, or actually inventions. So. Don't try to profit off of diversity, but choose diverse people for the sake of diversity so that it better reflects who we are as a society, right? I mean, we are different people and we come from different parts of the world with different ideas and slices of that society are what we see in institutions. And it makes perfect sense what you said. I mean, don't sort of pursue them as a means to an end. They are the end. To answer the the second part of the question, I think that one of the very positive things of of these initiatives is that younger students are finally starting to find idols that look like them, starting to learn that, you know, you can do it. 
just because in the past uh, certain people were neglected from participating in something like science doesn't mean that you know this that there is some inherent truth for why that's happened. Uh, instead, you know, it's it's been malpractice. It's been power falling into the hands of a very few, mm-hmm. uh, and. And so that's been great. I mean, and I think that that should be happening. I think that anybody who wants to study brain cells or or ecology or whatever it may be should, first of all, be given the tools to do so. Um, but secondly, um, the the possibility of, of them thinking of that in some way that's achievable starts with having role models. Yeah, there's some very despicable numbers out there, like um, I think uh, within U.S. institutions, uh, there's only 3% of fully tenured uh, black professors. That's despicable. It's not it's not reflective of, you know, the population. It's uh, clearly reflective of years and years of oppression which continue yeah and it continues today it's all the elitism all the exclusionary habits principles system rules that's been put in place and propagated over years um yeah three percent is an appalling number institutions If they really are truly invested in increasing diversity, then one of the things that they also have to think about is their culture. Um, Do they have culture that's welcoming ultimately? Sometimes that has to do with making some sort of drastic changes. And I think that if people aren't prepared to make those drastic changes, they're not going to see real healthy outcomes. The example that I always think of is, think of somebody that's professional. Uh, What do you imagine? You probably imagine somebody in a button-up shirt, wearing a tie, they're maybe carrying a suitcase, and there may be a white male. A lot of us will try to sort of assimilate that because that's the common idea of what professionalism is. And so until we can change what we view as a professional, a lot of these things are going to perpetuate um, uh, because a lot of people are being left out due to the very culture. If you don't see yourself reflected in some of these people within academia, you're not going to want to be part of academia. Right. You know, that's just the. the I mean, there's path. only a few of us who, 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 despite the fact that we don't have idols to look up to, a very, very few handful of us is going to like break through that barrier and be like, no, I can see myself in that position in the future and and sort of work towards it. But for like more than I'm sure 98% of us, it helps so much to see somebody or to see what you're working for. And you're absolutely right. It's the vision that matters. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, so developing a better culture within the institutions might help develop a culture without the institutions, because ultimately you're recruiting from the regular, ordinary, everyday populace. If you're only selecting for people who fit what you deem is appropriate for academia, then you're creating a great divide. And I think that's why there's so much distrust right now between the general community and scientists, because we're not uh, we're not creating a culture where we actively participate with the community and communicate with them and mm-hmm. sort of 
you know, we're, we're self-selecting for what we consider professional or to have professional uh, potential. I mean, I think that as scientists, we kind of always rely on like these deep ideas of like wanting to instill change or help the world in some way. And we're not actively participating in the grander orchestra of science then ultimately, you know, we're not achieving that to that fullest potential that, that I think we must. Academia is notorious for not having any semblance of a work-life balance. <laughs> How have you managed so far? And do you have any tips or habits that you think has helped you and you think would help others? Science can and will be like very temporally and mentally demanding. So I think it's important to have outlets for creativity. For me, those just happen to be uh, poetry. I like writing poetry and outdoor activities. So just going out and riding my bike. So I think it's always good to have things outside of science, even though you can be more successful and maybe you know, you'll know you get a paper published before some of your colleagues or whatever. You know, like your sanity is so much more important in the long run. Especially as brain scientists, we know of the horrible effects that stress and sleep deprivation can have on not only your brain, but the rest of your body, which is connected to your brain. So I think that we should make a rational decision to hold back from that ultimately socioeconomic ambition because uh, we're very we're very naturally curious beings but that curiosity only takes us so far anything beyond that is often just pursuit of you know material things it can have a negative effect on you so being very wary of that and making that smart decision to say hey you know what this is starting to work to my detriment work against my health. I think that that's what's helped me uh, sort of make that time for myself, yeah, thinking about it rationally. I think that's wonderful. This is such a healthy way of thinking about work-life balance as you head into grad school and I think hopefully it holds really well for you. listening to this episode of the Alba Diversity Podcast. To know more about the Alba Network and its activities to promote equity and diversity in the brain sciences, please visit alba.network. You can also register as a member for free and take full advantage of the network's resources. For more details, follow the Twitter handle at network underscore Alba or Alba NetBrain on Facebook.